Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back. Seeking some inspiration for the pod for different historical events and topics for this time period, I took to the Twitter to ask for some suggestions. Someone came back with early medicine practices, and I thought, why not? And what a nightmare-inducing experiment that research was. The practice of medicine in the early republic was rudimentary at best. Very little formalized training or standards and some of the crudest methods of treatment possible. It could turn into a literal bloodbath very quickly. So this week, I'm diving into the history of early medicine in America. Be warned, friends, it gets a little gross and graphic. We are speaking of the human body, after all. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. At the beginning of the new country, there were very few trained physicians living in America. It is estimated that by 1770, roughly 200 doctors lived in the colonies. This kind of makes sense when you think about the earliest settlers to the new continent, right? A predominant number of those who immigrated to America were looking for a way to become prosperous, having little success in their European homeland. Physicians didn't need to move to the new world. They had successful practices at home and therefore had no real desire or need to seek out other ventures. The new land for the colonists meant new exposure to diseases and high mortality rates from illnesses such as malaria. To combat these new maladies, a lot of trust and faith was placed on home remedies, recipes and treatments that had been passed down from generation to generation. And much like today, access to medical care was dependent on where you lived. Individuals living in rural areas had minimal options available, while those living in a city setting could seek out a variety of so-called specialists. There was no standard method or accreditation for someone in the medical profession, so I use the term professional and doctor very loosely here. Doctors were expensive and called only for complex procedures, such as bloodletting, so many used their own traditional methods at home as much as possible. There was little government control and oversight of medicine and very little attention paid to public health. The first medical society established in the new country was in 1735, and it would be another 30 years before the first medical school was established with the Medical College of Philadelphia in 1765. King's College established their own medical program in 1767, and issued the first MDs in the country in 1770. Considering the first colonists arrived more than 100 years prior, you can imagine some of the horrors experienced. Women were big in early American medical care, especially during child labor and delivery. Pregnancy during the 19th century was a dangerous affair for both mom and baby, with women dying in childbirth at alarming rates and many children dying in their first year of life. In some of the earliest data on record, it is estimated roughly 13% of children born in the United States in the mid-19th century, about 1850 or so, did not make it to their first birthday. 
to assist with the dangerous life experience, one that many women would have multiple times throughout their shortened lifespan, women relied on their elders to provide a knowing and guiding hand. Midwives were typically older and had experience with prior deliveries and used this experience while assisting a woman through their births. Around for millennia, these medical women would assist their fellow females through the difficulties of childbirth and assist them through their postpartum period. One prominent midwife during this time was Martha Ballard, who was on hand for over a thousand births while working in Maine. Ballard, who was born in Oxford, Massachusetts in 1735, gave birth to nine children of her own, losing three to diphtheria. She began her practice of midwifery in 1778 and would continue her practice, being present at over a thousand births up until her death in 1812. The reason we know of Miss Ballard is because she kept a diary of her work. For 27 years, Ballard documented everything from the medications she administered to the 816 births she assisted in and the remedies she prescribed to the mothers. Her diary was so detailed and important, she even took testimonies from unwed mothers to be used in paternity suits. As medical advancements grew, surgeons began fighting against midwives, believing their surgical skill and tools would serve birthing mothers better. Because there was such a laxed approach to the study and career of medicine, individuals could present themselves as doctors with little to no training. And as there was a delay in developing medical schools in the United States, many either apprenticed with another doctor or just studied medicine and biology from a textbook. Because that sounds safe. When home remedies proved ineffective, those who were able sought out any number of individuals who were considered trained and able to treat their loved ones. Minister physicians, barber surgeons, apothecaries, midwives, or ministers. And barber surgeons were not super talented hairstylists. Rather, they were individuals who knew how to perform basic and painful procedures, such as amputation and pulling teeth. When using a doctor to treat a specific ailment, they would usually assess the malady and decide if they needed to perform a procedure or just write a list of herbs and compounds to be used as medicine to aid their patient and send them off to the local apothecary, the first versions of a prescription. Apothecaries were the early versions of pharmacists. While sometimes they may have some education in medicine, many were primarily trained and skilled in chemical compounds and would mix various ingredients to make a tonic or powdered medication depending on the illness. They used natural remedies such as Peruvian bark to treat fevers. The bark contained quinine, which is still used as an ingredient in aspirin today. Apothecaries weren't just chemistry geeks, though. Some were able to perform minor procedures, such as lancing boils and pulling teeth. Eventually, their talents were corrupted as supposed cure-alls started to flood the market in the mid to late 19th century. Again, without much oversight and regulation, people were able to package and bottle up whatever they wanted to and claim it cured any number of ailments. Men would go on the road in so-called medicine shows where they'd peddle their miracle cures for anyone willing to shell out a few pennies. And speaking of cure-alls and the craziness of early medicine, one of my favorite podcasts, For the Love of History, recently covered Victorian medicine and shared some pretty gruesome treatments across the pond. She dives into some wonderfully obscure and fascinating topics, and I highly recommend you go check it out when you're done here. But getting back. 
During the first half of the 19th century, doctors believed bodies were a collection of parts that were intimately connected to one another. Therefore, the entire body had to be treated for a disease, not just a limb. It was this belief in balance that led to the various methods of purging liquids from the body. From bleeding to forcing defecation, medical professionals felt that if you were ill, you could deplete yourself of the imbalance by simply shedding the excess fluids from your body. Bleeding was seen as a scientific approach to healing, and doctors would measure the amount of blood drained from the body by using a small handheld bowl. For those who needed bleeding but who professionals did not want to cut open, such as children or those who were gravely ill, leeches were used to extract the blood. And bleeding wasn't the only way they rid bodies of excess fluid. Some would prescribe purgatives, which would cause the patient to defecate all in the name of balance. Additionally, while they hadn't figured out germ theory just yet, medical professionals did believe that being clean was the easiest and simplest way of preventing illness and disease. People washed using soap made of lye, and men kept their faces clear of most facial hair, thinking it would lead to good health. When performing procedures, doctors would try to remain clean, but did not wear the protective gear used today. Instead, wounds were bandaged, usually by cotton material, and packed with things like honey or egg whites. More common during the Civil War, amputations during the early part of the 19th century were seen as too invasive and were avoided at all costs. When circumstances necessitated an amputation, speed was the ultimate weapon. Without the convenience of chloroform or any other sleeping aid or painkiller, the patient had to be held down while the doctor quickly tied a tourniquet, cut through the flesh, scraped away the muscle, and started to saw through the bone. If you were good, you could cut the bone within 20 seconds. One of the first advancements in medicine was the idea of inoculation. Diseases spread quickly throughout the colonies and could wipe out large swaths of a town or village, with smallpox being one of the worst culprits. Individuals infected with the virus developed sores filled with pus all over their body. In order to provide some form of immunity to the pox, little sticks made of ivory were developed and used to swab inside the sores to get a small sample of the virus. Then, the doctor would cut open the skin of a healthy person and insert the stick inside the wound, giving them hopefully a mild case of the pox. By getting a mild form of the virus, it allowed the body to fight the infection and develop antibodies, preventing them from getting a more serious version of the disease later. Inoculation proved so effective that George Washington made sure the entire Continental Army went through the procedure to ensure safety. And while most of us have heard the stories and rumors about George Washington's teeth, there was some basic dentistry available at the time. Few people brushed their teeth, but there were toothpicks made of silver and ivory to help keep the mouth clean and free of food debris. The increased use in sugar also led to a high amount of tooth decay. Because of the lack of overall consistent dental hygiene, combined with little advancements in the field of dentistry, barber surgeons would perform extractions for any tooth identified as too far gone. No cavity fillings for our colonial ancestors, unfortunately. They had to muscle up, Sit in a chair and wait as the surgeon used tools from your nightmares to just yank out the teeth. Side note, I am someone who hates, literally hates, the dentist. 
I watched this piece on YouTube from the Northeast Georgia History Center on early medical treatments. And of course, the host demonstrated three terrifying tools used to pull teeth from someone's mouth. I was sweating profusely. If you want some nightmares, go ahead and give it a watch. I've included the link in my show notes. Probably the worst part of this whole experience was, again, the lack of any anesthesia or painkiller for the patient. The only option available was to get liquored up before the procedure began. I know it's irrational, but I feel like I would have just let the teeth rot in my head and died at a young age. Western medicine wasn't the only game in town during the early American Republic. Indigenous Americans relied on their local tribal healers, referred to as medicine men, to provide care. Many medicine men relied on their power of observation to identify and treat their fellow tribesmen. With over 500 nations and as many different medicinal approaches, something that remained consistent was a tie to nature and keeping one in balance with the world around them. And whereas Western physicians tended to focus on the physical, medicine men centered their treatments around spiritual healing, connecting mind, body, and spirit to nature. Indigenous healers believed that all living things had spirit and that to rid oneself of an ailment, they needed to seek balance among the spirits surrounding them. Rituals and ceremonies were key in indigenous treatment plans, and they could last hours or days. They could involve things like masks and drum beating aimed at frightening the ailing spirit away. Unlike Western medicine, tribal healers passed down their knowledge through oral tradition, never committing their remedies to writing. With the focus on natural elements in their healing practice, many medicine men used plants and herbs in their treatment protocols. For example, tobacco was used to heal wounds, packed in the mouth to prevent tooth decay, and help with constipation. All that from just one plant. Alternative healing methods weren't just relegated to indigenous healers. In the 1800s, snake oil became a healing tonic to treat inflammation and arthritis. Brought over by Chinese immigrants, the tonic was made from the oil of Chinese water snakes. And did you know that the vibrator was originally developed as an early treatment for hysteria? Doctors introduced the idea of pelvic massage to alleviate women from this awful disease. Of course, a woman could be diagnosed with hysteria for having anxiety, irritability, sexual desire, or insomnia. So basically, if you were a woman, you had a high chance of being labeled as hysterical at least once in your life. Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville, who grew tired of performing the manual massages, developed a steam-powered device nicknamed the manipulator. How is that for new medical technology? Medicine continued to be a fairly crude practice until the Civil War, where circumstances necessitated more advancements. As thousands of soldiers were wounded and treated on the field, they would often die in recovery due to the lack of cleanliness. Everything from unsterilized instruments to doctors failing to wash their hands in between patients. As the study of anatomy and germ theory increased, so too did the advancements in medicine. But I think we can all agree that we're pretty glad we never had to seek treatment in early America, right? I hope you enjoyed this journey down the grotesque history of early medicine in America. If you'd like to learn more about the show or request a topic, review source material, or just say howdy, you can catch me on the website, www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks, peeps. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, 
be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.